Hello and welcome to edition number 1927 of the Whitney Talking News, which we're recording at the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 1st of September. I'm Jean and I edited this edition. Beside me at the recording controls we have Graham Diacom. This week we have items from the Whitney Gazette and The Countryman. Our four readers are Amanda Harvey, Gavin Smalley, Teresa Hayes and John Ashwell. So, let's have our first story, which is an optimistic one about church bells and will be read by Amanda. Church bells to one of the victims of COVID-19. Two new bells will be hung in St Mary's Church to commemorate the people of Whitney who died during the COVID pandemic and to mark this historic time. Funds are being raised for the casting of a COVID commemoration bell and a new community bell at the Grade 1 listed church. It's promised that some donors can even be part of the installation if they wish. The Just Giving appeal launched by Whitney Ringing Society with the Oxford Diocesan Bell Fund may also pay for essential maintenance for the existing eight bells and mechanisms. Tower Captain Andrew Goldthorpe said, The bells were last rehung in 1938, and nothing has been done except essential maintenance since then. Now the church needs a lot of money spent on it. Enormous sums have already been raised to maintain the fabric of St Mary's, but more is needed to replace the floor and central heating. It means that the bell fund, run entirely on donations from ringers, has become severely depleted. The cast iron frame and fittings are beginning to rust, the timber wheels and fittings are old and need refurbishing, and the belfry would benefit from modernisation and weatherproofing, said Mr Goldthorpe. The UK's last working bell foundry, Taylors of Loughborough, has quoted the cost of maintenance to the current appeal, the casting and hanging of two new bells, and the modernisation work on the church clock and carillon at approximately £75,000. The two new bells will cost around £12,000 each to be cast, tuned and hung. If there are surplus funds, they will be used for improvements to the historic church clock and carillon, which were donated over 150 years ago, but are now in need of modernisation. The bells were silenced during Covid due to the need for social distancing and some towers closed. Mr Goldthorpe said, We couldn't ring because we weren't allowed to stand shoulder to shoulder even though Whitney has one of the biggest and best ventilated towers and people started to drift away. The bells are rung by volunteers in each village and now we've lost Standlake and Aston. The eight-bell peal at Whitney is one of the most historic and finest sounding in the area, with the oldest bell dating back to 1660. The Whitney and Woodstock branch of the Oxford Diocesan Guild of Bell Ringers, the largest guild in the world, has bell ringers aged from 10 to 100, who ring bells for Sunday services, teaching and to mark special events. In September 2018, the church and Whitney residents celebrated the 775th anniversary of St Mary's rededication by King Henry II in 1243. Secondly, Gavin will be reading about exam results this week, the GCSEs and BTECs. Tears and hugs as results opened. Emotions ran high as as pupils celebrated after getting their GCSE and BTEC results today after sitting exams for the first time since the pandemic. Schools returned to timed exams this year instead of teacher assessments used in 2020 and 2021. At Wood Green School, Robin, Molly and Lily, who were all over the moon with their results, while Jamie... 
celebrated a fantastic five grade nines. Will Lewis will be, asked, will be taking four A-levels in all the sciences with the ambition of becoming a computer scientist. Molly Roger, who received a hug from Dad Daniel, said, I'm so pleased because all my friends have been accepted into the sixth form. Teresa Crocker was overjoyed to discover daughter Tori Cornish had achieved the passes she needed to take up a hairdressing apprenticeship in Whitney. She said, it's been such a tough year for them. I'm so emotional. There was, no, there was a doubt over whether she would pass, so now I can't stop crying. Alfie Cross's grades mean he can take up an apprenticeship as an electrician, while his friend Jack Pryor is still considering his options, and Matthias Kazmarkek is heading into the sixth form. Head teacher Rob, Schaub, Rob Shadbolt said, It is hard to draw comparisons with the past, but it is so pleasing to note that the results this year have actually exceeded the last normal GCSE year of 2019. Considering students have gone through a lockdown and remote learning and higher absence due to COVID for themselves or their teachers, this is particularly impressive achievement. The Henry Box School said it was proud of its Year 11 students. Head teacher Wendy Hemingsley said, These excellent results are a reflection of the hard work and dedication shown by our students over the past two extremely challenging years. We would like to wish them every success as they prepare for the next chapter in their lives. Many of our students will be joining our sixth form in September and we look forward to welcoming them back. Now for a transport story read by Teresa. Frustrated passengers hit out at new bus cuts. Councillors and residents have expressed frustration at some of the cuts to bus services in and around Whitney which came into effect from Sunday, August 28th. Hanborough and Minster Lovell County Councillor Liam Walker, who is Shadow Cabinet Member for Highways, said while some areas may benefit, it has left many frustrated with the lack of consultation and the disruption to travel plans. Paul Hughes, who lives on Shilton Park in Carterton and works in Oxford, uses the S2 service, which will no longer serve Carterton. Mr Hughes said, as someone who uses the S2 service every day to get to work, the changes that Stagecoach describe as a tweak are going to have a massive impact on my life. I regularly catch the 6.02am S2 to Oxford, which currently gets me into George Street at 6.35am, ready to start work at 6.45am. With the changes, I will have to catch an S1 at 4.49am to get me into Oxford at 6.02am. As you can see, this is a very significant change. Local councillors also criticise what they see as a lack of consultation from Stagecoach and Oxfordshire County Council. District Councillor Ben Woodruff, who represents Kerbridge, said, I have received emails from residents who have moved to Kerbridge due to its good public transport connections and who are now faced with significant transport changes with no prior warning. Stagecoach should have been working with the County Council who are responsible for transport in Oxfordshire, to better understand the impact that service changes would have on residents. This lack of consultation is just not good enough at all. Most bus routes in Oxfordshire are operated on a commercial basis, with the cost primarily met from fares, without any involvement from the County Council. But bus companies are required to consult with the County Council 
when making any changes to bus routes or times. Stagecoach said it had, in fact, been working closely with Oxfordshire County Council since the start of the pandemic to deal with a drop in demand and ensure routes are sustainable. Richard Galliamassi, Managing Director of Stagecoach West, said, These service changes were submitted to Oxfordshire County Council with 10 weeks' notice, as required. Oxfordshire County Council has been working hard supporting services across the region, preventing larger-scale redundancies through a series of tenders. The delays in this process have meant that we were not able to communicate these updates until now. OCC said most places would continue to receive a comparable level of service to today, although changes to routes through some villages would mean lower frequency services and a need to change buses to reach some destinations. The County Council recognises that any bus service reductions can have a substantial impact on those affected, particularly in places that have traditionally had very good levels of service, it said. But it added that options for intervention are very limited. As a result of declining revenue support from the government, Oxford County Council made the decision in 2016 to cease providing subsidies for bus services as as this is not a statutory function and it was necessary for the council to focus on the services we are legally required to deliver. Here's another transport-related story from John. Gearing up to canvas views on cycling plans. Researchers want to hear from Oxfordshire people on plans to get them to ditch their cars and cycle or walk more frequently. Whitney and Bicester residents are being asked for their views on recent transport changes and what leaders can do to make walking and cycling easier, as part of a study supported by the National Institute for Health and Care Research, NIHR. Those who use local routes to get to work, including travelling to railway stations three or more days a week, or older adults aged 65 to 75, are being sought for their views. They are invited to an hour-long focus group in Bicester or Whitney, to discuss the changes and whether transport plans would encourage them to walk and cycle more. The University of Bristol and Oxfordshire County Council research study is funded by the NIHR Public Health Intervention Responsive Studies Teams, commonly known as PHIRST. That's a scheme which will evaluate practical interventions to improve public health decision-making. While getting people to walk and cycle in cities is well-researched, less research has been undertaken in market towns. Other plans include bike library cycle borrow schemes, free bike repairs, training and walking and, and cycling groups. Participants must have a good mobility, live and travel independently and safely, and not already walk or cycle frequently. There will be a maximum of 10 participants and the researcher in each group and participants will be offered a £30 love-to-shop voucher. Researchers are also looking to accompany residents on their local journeys with a follow-up interview later in the year. There will also be another meeting in Whitney and Bicester to share findings. And here's, here's another item concerning transport and communications issues. MP accused of stoking fires of culture war. 
Whitney in West Oxfordshire MP, Robert Courts, is asking people to add their names to a petition calling on Oxfordshire County Council to start listening to local residents. The petition declares that the concerns of West Oxfordshire people have been ignored by the County Council on issues including the closure of Whitney High Street, ending free parking in Woodstock and introducing 20 mile per hour speed limits across Whitney. One in three people who responded to the Council's consultation expressed support for the 20 mile per hour plans. In the County Council's consultation on permanently closing a stretch of Whitney High Street, a majority opposed the plans, including 36 out of 37 local traders. In Woodstock, 404 residents expressed opposition to the County Council's plans to end free parking in the town, compared to 54 votes in support. It adds, The petitioners therefore request that the Liberal Labour Green Coalition running Oxfordshire County Council reconsider their current approach and immediately start listening to the people of West Oxfordshire. On his website, Mr Courts said that the 20 mile per hour speed limit in most streets in Whitney is yet another example of County Hall ignoring the views of West Oxfordshire residents to plough ahead with their ideological agenda. But one resident accused the MP of stoking a pathetic culture war and said the County Council also has a much more recent democratic mandate than Mr Courts. Jerry Dixon from Whitney said Mr Courts should be concerning himself with more serious issues, like the cost of living crisis and the climate emergency. Is this really what we're paying him for? He wrote. There is also the fact that the proposed 20 mile per hour speed limit in Whitney is not a blanket approach, as he claims, but limited to residential areas. Roads like Deer Park Road, Burford Road, Station Lane, Ducklington Lane and Thorny Lees will, as I understand it, be 30 miles per hour. You would hope that for £80,000 a year, Mr Courts could be bothered to take the time to learn the facts. Investigation into death of motorcyclist, 25. A motorcyclist killed in a crash died following a severe traumatic brain injury an inquest has heard. Drew Macaulay Simpson, 25, from Whitney, died following a collision on the A44 near the Duke of Marlborough pub near Woodstock on May the 25th. He died at the John Rogliffe Hospital the following day. An inquest on Mr Simpson was opened by Senior Coroner Darren Salter at Oxford Coroner's Court on Wednesday. Mr Salter said, the inquest o- said at the inquest opening that Mr Simpson's cause of death was given as severe traumatic brain injury. A full inquest on Mr Simpson will take place on January 11th. His family previously said in a statement... We as a family are utterly devastated by the loss of our much-loved son, brother, grandson, uncle, partner to Trinity and best friend to so many, especially his fur baby Otis, his three-legged dog. Drew's generosity knew no bounds. His passion for everything he undertook was admirable and his loyalty was unquestionable. Our hearts are broken forever, but the outpouring of love in both conversation and messages received by so many has been of great comfort. A special heartfelt thank you must go to those who, those first on the accident scene who gave their all and the amazing team at the John Ratcliffe Hospital. All of our beautiful memories of our treasured son will never dilute. He will live, in our, live on in our hearts. And now an article about the fun that some people have been having in the sun this summer. Stars join party on the farm at Tastiest, tastiest Music Festival. Stars from the worlds of music, food, TV and film join thousands of revellers on the farm of rock artist Alex James 
for what has been described as the tastiest festival of the summer. Fans of pop, rock and dance were joined by gastronomic enthusiasts and families for the big festival at the Blur Bassist's farm in Kingham near Chipping Norton at the weekend. The event, which drew to a close on Sunday, was Oxfordshire's last major festival of the summer and saw revellers, including some famous faces, treated to three days of pop, rock and dance from chart stars and up-and-coming new artists and demonstrations by leading, leading culinary experts. The festival, which basked in glorious sunshine, was headlined by 80s electro-pop art act The Human League, chart star Anne-Marie, and Welsh, Welsh rockers Stereophonics, who brought the main stage to a close in Sunday, on Sunday night with a rousing set of hit, hits culminating in anthem Dakota. Other artists received thumb, the thumbs up included Basement Jax, Gabrielle, Jax Jones, Gracie, The Future Heads, Jake Bug, and the reunited original lineup of the chart toppers Sugar Babes, Mucia Buena, Keisha Buchanan, and Siobhan Donaghy. Familiar faces included former Love Island presenter Laura Whitmore and TV's Vernon Kay, who both compared the main stage. Comedian, writer, and actor Simon Pegg, who returned to read stories to young festival goers, and Cotswold writer, comedian, and trigger happy TV star Dom Jolly, who also tried his hand at DJing in the festival's Cheese Hub bar venue. Also spotted was Caleb Cooper, the Chipping Norton far- farmer who rose to fame through his appearances on Clarkson's Farm, the Amazon Prime TV programme which follows the agricultural travails of presenter Jeremy Clarkson on nearby Diddley Squat Farm. Foodies were treated to some of the best street festival caterers in the country and could pick up tips from chefs such as Thomasina Myers, Romy Gill, Ed Hughes, Claire Smythe and DJ BBQ. Host Mr James said, This festival absolutely combines everything I love. Where I live, food, music and family stuff. This was a dream lineup, and we spent all year making it brilliant and gorgeous. He added, we will be back in 2023 and cannot wait to welcome you all back on the farm next August. Well, this piece combines volunteering and the environment and is headed up Make Connections with Nature Lovers for the Benefit of Wildlife. And it's by Liz Gamlin from the Barks, Bucks and Oxen Wildlife Trust. She's a volunteer. I'm not a local here, I'm a Bristolian. When I left school, I moved to the northwest and lived happily for many years in a little village outside Macclesfield, on the edge of the Peak District. I could step out of my front door and walk up Teg's Nose, a gentle hill from which you can gaze over Jodrell Bank and the Cheshire Plain on one side and the hills of Derbyshire on the other. Then I moved to Oxfordshire, and I still miss the hills. I've been living here for at least ten years before I discovered a hidden haven of nature beneath Digcott Power Station's iconic cooling towers. Sutton Courtney, Sutton Courtney's Environmental Educational Centre, S-C-E-E-C. The site is run by the Berkshire Bucks and Oxfordshire Wildlife Trust, Bobont, looking for the badger on the logo. I'm a teacher by trade and have worked in many different environments. 
I had just given up volunteering with riding for the disabled after I lost my confidence in dealing with unruly horses and I was looking for paid employment or a volunteering role. That was how I found SCEEC. My first visit to the site was a revelation. Drive past the modern business buildings in Milton Park and turn into the SCEEC gates. On one side is a small wooded area with benches, dens and a natural music garden and on the other a wooden building with light airy classrooms. A gentle stroll around the site will take you past the stream, the pond, the bird hide and the meadow. Small group visits the site regularly for outdoor activities such as pond dipping and meadow sweeping. All sessions are run by our very knowledgeable staff assisted by our fantastic learning volunteers, but they are almost all aimed at children. About a year ago, I started reflecting on the many adult visitors who would say, I've lived here for years and I never knew this existed. I thought it was sad, I thought it was sad that so many local people were unaware of this wonderful nature haven. So I began to think about offering a regular slot for adults, to come and enjoy the reserve and have a gentle walk and a chat over a cup of tea. That was the start of Wild Connections. On the last Friday of April, four of us volunteers welcomed eight visitors to the site. Most of them had never been to the reserve before. We had a guided walk round the reserve and then we chatted over light refreshments. We planted seeds in homemade paper pots and talked about possible future activities. People liked the relaxed, friendly atmosphere and the opportunity to enjoy nature. On the last Friday in May, we finished our morning with a mug of tea, using water we had boiled ourselves in a camping kettle under the supervision of a trained volunteer. Wild Connections is open to anyone over 18. We want to be as inclusive as possible. And although it's not a children's event, babes in arms are also welcome. Last month we welcomed Sheila. She had visited the site when, with her children when they were young, but now she wanted to have her own bit of time enjoying nature. So please come and join us on the last Friday of each month. We are planning to continue through the winter months, though we may not be spending the whole of the morning outside. You will need to book in advance at BBOWT website. Current cost is £2. Find out, no sorry, find our upcoming sessions and get more details on our events page at BBOWT.org.uk. Now for the editor's choice. This week I've chosen a piece from The Countryman about the problems of usage of plastic and, in particular, what is being done on Exmoor. It's uh, entitled Exmoor Unwrapped and there's a couple of beautiful scenic photographs here, some with uh, some of the uh, Exmoor ponies on. From my high vantage point above the Exmoor village of Dunster, I look across a thirst-quenching panorama This is a land of wild heights and deep, sequestered coombs, a place where cloud shadows race across the landscape, 
weather-beaten farmsteads hunker down against the elements and mighty sea cliffs plummet to the Bristol Channel. Exmoor has been shaped by nature and people for centuries. Its 267 square miles, part of which was once a royal hunting forest, was designated a national park in 1954 and is now conserved for everyone to enjoy. It straddles the county boundary between Somerset and Devon, with the majority of the moor, 71%, being in Somerset. Grazed by wild red deer and Exmoor ponies, it is a place to seek sanctuary from the modern world. But in recent times, the modern world, with its litter and pollution, has encroached on this remote moor. Now, thanks to a wonderfully collaborative initiative, the impingement of humanity is being redressed, and in April this year, Exmoor became the UK's first national park to be awarded the status of a plastic-free community by the marine conservation charity Surfers Against Sewage, SAS. SAS initiated this award system in 2018, and there are now 718 plastic-free communities across the country. The designated plastic-free communities have a commitment to reducing plastic use and waste, and each area that achieves accreditation must have complied, or committed to, continuing to comply, with a five-point plan. These points cover such considerations as community involvement with the initiatives, local business champions, and support from the local council. Peter Hoyland works at the Exmoor National Park Centre in Dunster and took on coordinating the Exmoor-wide campaign in 2021. He tells me that the support from the Exmoor community has been tremendous. We now have a network of more than 40 businesses and organisations across Exmoor that are committed to reducing and removing our reliance on single-use plastic as well as helping us to spread the plastic-free message to others in the local community and to people visiting our beautiful national park. A growing number of businesses have signed up and have achieved the accolade of business champion. Peter explains what they need to do. We have a wide variety of plastic-free business champions, including accommodation providers, cafes, shops food and drink producers and activity providers. These are all independently run businesses and all have removed or replaced with sustainable alternatives at least three items of single-use plastic. Some of them have gone much further and removed all of the single-use plastics they previously used. One of the business champions is the Cellworthy Pantry, a small, independent that produces a range of preserves, chutneys and relishes from the pretty Exmoor village of Selworthy. Everything is sold in glass jars with metal lids and the labels on the jars and lids are made of paper. Deliveries are made in cardboard boxes packed with recycled and shredded paper and cardboard and the boxes are taped with plastic-free eco-tape. Another business champion is Exmoor Tea Company based in Dulverton on the southern edge of the moor. This company produces a range of high-quality teas with tea bags free from plastic, so they are completely home compostable. 
The tea is packaged in cardboard boxes with no cellophane outer wrapper and all deliveries are made in cardboard boxes with paper packaging and eco-tape. The involvement of individuals on Exmoor is also heartening. We work with other local plastic-free communities and environmental groups to organise beach cleans and litter picks across Exmoor, Peter tells me, and it sounds as though the message is getting through. In May this year, we carried out a beach clean at Greenerley Sand, a beach on the eastern edge of Exmoor. Over a 550-yard stretch of Shingle Ridge, seven volunteers picked up five full sacks of plastic debris, including 85 plastic bottles. While some of this had been left on the beach, most of it had been washed in on the high tides. After a beach clean like this, you know that there is still a massive amount of plastic debris out in the environment. Plastic is everywhere, and it's going to take a huge effort to reduce its production and use in society. As individuals and consumers, we can make changes within our own lives and through the influence of businesses who produce food and other products. The plastic bottle issue is globally very concerning, but Peter outlined something that can be done to help remedy the problem. When you buy bottled water, you're basically buying just a plastic bottle, a bottle that can be recycled for a number of times before it becomes destined for landfill, but also quite often ends up in the environment or unrecycled in a litter bin, again destined for landfill or burning. However, if you use a refillable bottle, you can get water from home or from one of the many refill stations that exist across the country. Refill is an award-winning campaign from city to sea that provides a free app that lets you find free water refill stations all over the UK and the world. Across Exmoor, we are recruiting businesses and public buildings that are willing to provide people with free water refills. Our aim is to have at least one refill station in every village and town, as well as the long-distance walking trails that cross Exmoor. The hope is that people visiting Exmoor have free water wherever they go and the need to buy single-use plastic bottles is massively reduced. To date, more than 500 people have attended the Exmoor beach cleans and Peter says they recover many items that have been in the sea or wider environment for decades, such as a crisp packet from the 1990s something that should now reduce with the availability of recycling facilities. Once plastic has been produced, it is with us forever, Peter says. So wherever possible, we should look to avoid using it. And I feel that there is a real and growing desire within our community to reduce the amount of single-use plastic that, as a society, we currently use. People have an increasing understanding not only of the lasting impact that plastic has on the environment, but also the effect that it can have on our own health. We know plastic is in the food chain, and recent research has found microplastics in people's blood. Plastic pollution has been shown to be inextricably linked to the catastrophe of climate change. Humanity has to clean up its act. It will require huge habit-changing shifts from all of us, but with initiatives such as this to guide and encourage, it can be done. 
And given that all life on Earth is dependent for life on an environment that is fit to live in, it has to be done. We're often told to think globally, act locally, and this is just what Peter and the people of Exmoor are doing. Let's join them. Something I love is the pleasure that can be gained from volunteering. Of course, it usually brings benefits to others as well, so it's a win-win. Tonight, we are fortunate to have a reflection from Dave, who is an RNLI volunteer from Whitney. Thank you, Dave. Mention uh, Whitney, and, and what springs to mind? Blankets? David Cameron? Famed Norman Church, Church Green, coffee shops, Waitrose and the like, cinema, markets, leisure centre, swimming pool, golf club, fitness centre. Yes, we're rather blessed in Whitney to have so much at our fingertips. And I've not mentioned such as the health centre, hospital, fire brigade, public library, and schools. The list goes on. In fact, as an old anorak, the only thing missing for me is the railway, though I know there are attempts to remedy that. So there's plenty there, uh, and it's hardly surprising that lifeboats are unlikely to make the top ten. Yet as an RNLI volunteer, I remain humbled by the consistent support whenever our local stall comes to town. In fact, we're about as far away as in Whitney as you can get from the seaside, and the nearest lifeboat station is actually on the River Thames. But whenever I set up and man our stall on a Saturday in the marketplace, there's always lots of interest, plus donations and purchases of RNLI merchandise. We regularly take over £130, and just recently at the Shrivenham Bank Holiday Fete, the Farringdon branch, where I do media liaison, made £355, a, a record for the branch. As I mentioned, we are a long way from the sea, but 70% of rescues by the various lifeboat stations around the UK and Ireland are of people visiting the coast from inland areas. And of course we are an island nation, well aware of the sea around us, and in war most grateful. Whenever I'm behind the RLI stall, there's always someone who'll chat and tell me of their connection to the sea, or of family who served or are serving on lifeboats. It's a chance for me to tell them of my connection, dating back to the early 1950s, as I was growing up in Redcar on the northeast coast, where the alerts in those days were rockets fired from the lifeboat house. No mobile phones then. A key player was the guy who drove the tractor that pulled the boat down the slipway into the waves, and he lived over the road from us. Mr Upton was his name, and I'd peek out of curtains on a dark and stormy night to see him dashing away on his bike down to the lifeboat house. He was a volunteer of the old school, 
But of course they're needed just as much today. Crew, support, admin, fundraisers alike. The splendid documentaries TV series Saving Lives at Sea, currently on BBC on Thursday tonight, gives weekly graphic reminders, all filmed in real time, of the hazards faced daily by crews around the country. It's reassuring to know that there's always someone on hand 24-7 willing, if necessary, to risk their lives for others. And as we saw last month, to help even a small cat stuck perilously close to the water. In a bigger picture, preparations are already in hand for 2024 at national level to mark the 200th anniversary of the RNLI during which time its estimated crews and lifeguards have saved over 142,000 lives, about 700 a year, or nearly two a day. It all costs money, of course, and as the RNLI is independent from government, it relies on voluntary donations and fundraising. In 2021, it cost around $160 million to run this service, about half a million a day. Big figures then, but every little helps. So, if by chance you're in Whitney Market on Saturday, September the 17th, please drop on by. We'd be delighted to see you, and we've got Christmas cards for sale already. Also to remember, as ever, those in peril on the sea, however far away we may be. Thank you, Dave, for coming in to give your thoughtful reflection on a beloved institution. Now for the quiz. Questions and answers for last week's quiz. Question number one was, on August the 24th and 25th, the Capitol, the White House and several other buildings in the US Capitol, Washington, D.C., were burnt to the ground. Who did it? And for a bonus point, what was the year? 1812, British. 1812 is right, and it was the British Army. Well done. Question two. Which well-known city was destroyed by a massive volcanic eruption on the 24th of August, AD 79? Pompeii. Pompeii, yes. Number three. Back to Washington. Who made a speech on August the 28th at which the speaker declared... I have a dream. Correct, Martin Luther King. Number four. The author of the Gothic novel Frankenstein was born this month, i.e. August, in 1797. Who was it? Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley. And number five. Finally, which well-known beverage was sold in Britain for the first time on the 31st of August, 1900? Close. It was (laughs) Coca-Cola. And this week's quiz is about famous people. Number one, who was the Iron Chancellor who united Germany? Number two, 
Which Roman emperor sentenced Saint Peter to crucifixion? Number three. Which Ugandan president deposed Milton Obote and expelled the Asian community? Number four. Which king ordered the construction of the Tower of London? And lastly, number five, which partnership wrote the music and lyrics for The Sound of Music? Two points for that. Time for the notice board, which includes listeners' birthdays and deaths that have been reported in the Gazette this week. First of all, we wish Mr Ted Young a very happy birthday for today, the 1st of September, the day of recording. Our sympathies, though, to families and friends of the following whose deaths were announced this week. Susan Beale of Sobel House on the 17th of August, aged 73. John Derrick Haley of Minster Lovell on the 18th of August, after a sudden stroke. Jean Long, who passed away peacefully on the 8th of August and Olive Reynolds, who passed away on the 20th of August. We have our announcement from the Torch Fellowship. Whitney Torch Fellowship for the Visually Impaired meets on the first Saturday of every month at 2pm in the Welcome Church High Street. So that'll be this coming Saturday, September the 3rd. New members are very welcome. Please contact 01993... 891-639 As well as listening to the USB stick you receive from us each week, there are several ways for you to listen to all of our editions, including magazines. These include Sonata Plus and the Internet. Full details can be found on our website, wtn.org.uk. Just follow the link to listen online. If on any week you do not receive your stick or if there is a problem with producing them, you can always listen on the phone by dialing 01993 555 986. Keep listening at the end of the edition for the radio and audio described TV listings. Now we have our next story, which will be read by Amanda. Girl 16 was struck in face with bike chain. A teenage girl was struck in the face with the bike chain after being sworn at by her attacker, a court heard. The girl, who was then 16 years old, had been called a bitch by the curly-haired man in the Cogs area of Whitney. Asked why, he said, because you are. The man returned around an hour later, saw the girl and hit her in the face with the bike chain. The girl went to the John Radcliffe Hospital, where staff recorded a 2 centimetre by 2 centimetre swelling on the left side of her jaw. The attack on August 31, 2020, followed another alleged incident some time earlier when the girl had been taken to task by the same man for not social distancing, despite being with members of her own household. Wayne Heap was later identified after the girl saw the man she recognised as her attacker behind the wheel of a white Enterprise hire van several weeks later outside the Tesco Express in Cogs. 
She told her father the registration number of the van. He spotted the same vehicle on another date and photographed the man driving it. The 49-year-old carpenter, carpenter denied any involvement in the assault. Having been found guilty of causing actual bodily harm at the magistrate's court earlier this year, he appealed his conviction to Oxford Crown Court. His lawyers argued that there were question marks over the identification evidence. The girl claimed to have seen him in the van before the attack, but as the vehicle had only been hired from September, that would not have been possible. In the magistrate's court, the girl was said to have seen the photograph taken by her father before picking Heap out in the identity parade. Giving her evidence at the Crown Court, however, she maintained that she had not seen it. A 999 call made shortly after the assault by another woman described the assailant as being around 49, quite tall, with dark curly hair. In their judgment, Judge Nigel Nigel Daly and the two magistrates sitting alongside him described that description as consistent with Heap's appearance. On its own, that evidence would not be sufficient to prove his guilt, the panel said. But taken together with the victim's evidence, the panel was satisfied, so we are sure that the defendant was the assailant. After his appeal was dismissed, Heap said from the dock, I wasn't even there at the time, I wasn't even down that road. Judge Daly imposed 12 months imprisonment, suspended for two years. Heap, of Blakes Avenue, Whitney, must complete 180 hours of unpaid work and 30 probation service sessions. He was ordered to pay £500 in prosecution costs. Artist's creation given royal stamp of approval. An artist has had his stamp designs given the seal of approval by the Queen herself after thinking it was a joke. Andrew Wildman of Chipping Norton was asked to create the stamps based on popular culture robots, the Transformers. Toys, comics and films have all played their part in making the franchise a multi-billion pound success. Mr Wildman was involved in the early days and was recently asked to take part in a special project after signing a non-disclosure agreement. I got an email out of the blue and wasn't sure it was even real asking if I would do some drawings and designs for a special project, he told the newspaper. I had to sign an NDA and then I was sent an email from Royal Mail. I knew then it would be stamps and sure enough it was. I was asked to design the stamps and we got on board a couple of other people and we became a dream team. We went through lots and lots of approval processes, with them eventually being signed off by the Queen. I thought it was a joke at first, but they said it's the law. The stamps are released on September 1st and are available to pre-order via the Royal Mail website. It's amazing for me. Transformers was one of the first comic books I worked on, said Mr Wildman. Everything started for me at Marvel UK in 1988. They were publishing various things at that time and one of them was the Transformers in its very early incarnation. I didn't know much about Transformers, I was too old to play with the toys, but I was young and hungry and wanted to build my career so I said yes. I went on to work with with various comic books for Marvel and X-Men book and some Spider-Man ones. I didn't do much more with Transformers, so the stamps are a perfect way to cap off that part of my career. For an artist, being commissioned to do this is a real honour. It's right up there with my career highlights. Other projects Mr Wildman has worked on include Doctor Who, Paul Dark and Channel 5's Shane the Chef. 
It was designed to inform children of where their food comes from and to provide an understanding of healthy eating, he said. At the time, my children found it very amusing that I'd spent so much time doing these various comics and then I was doing a children's TV show. And now two short articles. First one uh, is about Jeremy Clarkson again. Paddington helps to look after young Clarkson. When you picture Paddington Bear, the kind-hearted icon of British children's literature, you are unlikely to think of outspoken motoring presenter-turned-farmer Jeremy Clarkson. But the Clarkson's farm star owes quite a bit to the adorable bear from Darkest Peru. The character of Paddington Bear was created by author Michael Bond and first appeared in the book A Bear Called Paddington on October 13th, 1958. Up in Doncaster, Mr Clarkson's parents, Shirley and Eddie Clarkson, ran a design business called Gabriel Designs and created a prototype Paddington Bear toy in 1972, which they gifted to Mr Clarkson and his sister Joanna for Christmas. Mr Bond soon got his lawyers involved to take action against the Clarksons. As legal action brewed, the pair headed down to London to meet with Mr Bond's solicitors and by chance met the author in the lift. Mr Bond and the Clarksons became fast friends and he awarded them the licensing rights to the toy throughout the world. Money the Clarksons made from Paddington Bear enabled them to send their son to two private schools, Hill House School in Doncaster and Repton School in Derbyshire. And the second article is about Whitney Feast, and there's just two weeks to go until Whitney Feast. Whitney Feast will return to the Lees in two weeks' time. The feast, which is nearly 800 years old, will take place on Monday, September the 12th, and Tuesday, September the 13th, starting with the traditional Golden Gallopers evening service conducted by St Mary's Church from the Carousel. The fair at the feast, run by Bob Wilson's Fun Fairs, is the largest in the town and one of the biggest in the county. Along with the traditional thrill-inducing rides such as the Walser and Dodgems, there are likely to be attractions like the Wild Mouse Roller Coaster. This piece is headed up Villagers in Latest Drive to Save Pub. Villagers embattled in a fight to save their last pub are again driving momentum after submitting a fresh bid. In May, the Stonesfield community was given a second bite of the cherry to purchase the white horse. The initial share scheme to buy the West Oxfordshire watering hole was backed by, op- uh, by actor Rupert Friend, who has this year starred in Netflix's Anatomy of a Scandal and Obi-Wan Kenobi on, Dis- on Disney+. However, the shared project was ultimately pipped by Jonathan Bowers, who completed the purchase of the pub in January 2021. This January, he told this newspaper that he hoped the pub would reopen within a couple of months after searching for tenants. The village community has now tabled a bid of £385,000 to Mr Bowers, with various events planned to gather support. Steve Callahan, chair of the Stonesfield Community Pub Steering Committee, said, We made a bid for the price that was paid for the pub in January 2021. From the land registry, we know just how much was paid for it. Quite a few people asked for their money back last time, so our job is to now get people to buy shares. 
The next steps are to get as many shares as possible and raise publicity. Although something has gone in our village magazine, the Stonesfield Slate, and on Facebook, you have to keep plugging away to keep it at the forefront of everybody's minds. We've got the full support of the village. Everyone is keen to get the pub open again. I can't take my dog for a walk down the road without at least two or three people asking me how things are getting on. The asset of community value means he has to be transparent with the plans. Mr Callaghan added that villagers have until October 26th to use the pub's asset of community value status before Mr Bowers can sell the pub to other bidders. Whitney MP Robert Court said... I am pleased with the campaign to reopen the White Horse as a successful village pub, which has my full support in making progress. It is encouraging that thanks to an incredible effort from Stonesfield residents, sufficient funds have been raised for the community to put in a bid for the pub. I hope that this bid will be looked upon favourably by the owner. I will continue to support the local community in their efforts to ensure Stonesfield boasts a pub which the entire village can enjoy and be proud of. Mr Bowers has been contacted but was unable to provide comment prior to publication. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK As we now move From the great heat of August to the rather gentler month of September, the radio schedules offer us some interesting new programmes to take us into autumn. Hopefully, some mellow fruitfulness awaits us. We begin with the programme serialised from Monday to Friday. Fatwa continues from last week at 9.45am on Radio 4 and is repeated at 12.30am. The composer of the week at noon on Radio 3 is Schubert. The new serial at 1.45pm on Radio 4 is Bhopal, the story of the journalist who foretold the world's worst industrial accident. Some Mother's Son by John Fletcher is at 8pm on Radio 4 Extra. An ecology journalist faces what he fears most. The book at bedtime is The Maid by Nita Prose. A maid in a grand hotel makes a discovery in a bedroom. You can hear it at 10.45pm on Radio 4. Here are some suggested programmes throughout the week. Saturday begins at 10.30am on Radio 4 with a new series of You're Dead to Me. This week's subject is Frederick the Great of Prussia. The drama at 2.45pm on Radio 4 is For Love Nor Money. It explores attitudes to Ukrainian refugees since their arrival in this country. J.B. Priestley's 1947 family drama, The Linden Tree, is at 4pm on Radio 4 Extra. Three hours of classic comedy is on offer on Radio 4 Extra from 7pm, when Natalie Haynes is back to school, highlights the joys and horrors of school days 
with programmes from the Radio Archive. An interesting question is posed at 8pm on Radio 4 when Chris Mason asks, Could the PM have a Brummy accent? Sounds of the 80s can be heard at 8pm on Radio 2, while at 9pm on Classic FM, David Meller presents his favourite melodies. Sunday, an interesting programme for many of us who enjoy a variety of music, can be found on Radio 4 at 1.30pm called A Little Flat, which explores how people choose the music they listen to. Elizabeth Gaskell's 19th century novel North and South is now very topical. It has been dramatised in three parts, beginning at 3pm on Radio 4. Classic FM celebrates its 30th birthday this week and at 4pm it's broadcasting a concert from St David's Cathedral with music by Vorchak, Britton and Marla. In the latest edition of Natalie Haynes' Stands Up for the Classics, the always entertaining historian and comedian tells the story of Homer's Odyssey at 4.30pm on Radio 4. A choice for 8pm, either a powerful drama on Radio 4 Extra, The Elephant's Foot, stars Alex Jennings, or on Radio 2, Sunday Night is Music Night, plays tribute to Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul. The subject of the latest instalment of Princess is Grace Kelly. It's at 9.30pm on Radio 4. Monday sees the first of six episodes of The Interesting Room 5, which is a series of interviews with people who have been changed by a diagnosis. It is at 11am on Radio 4 and is followed at 11.30am by The Frost Tapes. This interview from David Frost's archive is with Jane Fonda. The next Classic FM birthday concert is at 8pm and the programme is a mixture of Scottish and Scottish-themed music. The Blues Show with Keris Matthews is at 9pm on Radio 2. Tuesday brings another in the curious cases of Rutherford and Fry series. Today at 11am on Radio 4, the scientific pair and guests ponder a listener's questions about circles. The 2.15pm Radio 4 drama is the first of three parts in a new series of Faith, Hope and Charity. Parts 2 and 3 follow on Wednesday and Thursday at the same time. At 3.30pm on Radio 4, Steve Backshaw listens to the whales in a newswire of Costing the Earth. Tonight's prom at 7.30pm on Radio 3 has music by Ades, Britain and Bernstein. Another birthday concert from Classic FM includes pieces by Beethoven and Mozart. Don't forget that In Touch is at 8.40pm on Radio 4. The Jazz Show with Jamie Callum is at 9pm on Radio 2. Wednesday brings another in the Princess series. This time, the novelist Kate Moss 
looks at the life of Genghis Khan's granddaughter, Kutulun. She rejected suitors who couldn't beat her at wrestling. You can hear about her at 11.30am on Radio 4. Tonight at 6pm, Classic FM is on the roof of their London studio with a great line-up including The Sixteen, Alfie Bow and Shaka Khan Mason. To hear about Joe Lycett's obsessions and those of his guests, listen at 6.30pm on Radio 4. Expect to hear about a love of fire engines and hula hoops. Tonight's prom at 7.30pm on Radio 3 is a performance of Beethoven's Missa Solemnis. The subject of tonight's exchange, 8pm on Radio 4, is the experience of Emily and John, who first rejected and then rejoined their strict religious communities. The folk show with Mark Radcliffe is at 9pm on Radio 2. Thursday starts at 9am on Radio 4 with some positive thinking when key innovators discuss how to change the world for the better. Today sees the start of the test match between England and South Africa. You can hear commentary on Longwave on Radio 4 or on BBC Five Sports Extra on DAB. Play starts at 10.25am until 7pm on both wavelengths. It's music all the way on Classic FM from 4pm when the Mungo Jerry guitarist John Brunning presents Classic FM favourites followed at 7pm by Smooth Classics with Zeb Soames. Over to Radio 4 Extra for 6.30pm for Great Lives. Today's subject is the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein. Stay on Radio 4 Extra for the funny and quirky, small, intricate life of Gerald C. Potter. Tonight's front row is a celebration of poetry and the spoken word, coming from the Contain Strong Language Festival at 7.15pm. The Country Show with Bob Harris is at 9pm on Radio 2. Friday sees the second day of the Test Match, broadcast times and wavelengths as Thursday. The second episode of the comedy family drama Relativity is at 11.30pm on Radio 4. Antisocial follows at 12.04pm when Adam Fleming investigates issues which are fiercely debated on social media. The drama on Radio 4 at 2.15pm is an episode of the intriguing Exemplar, which follows the cases of two audio forensic scientists. The new series of The News Quiz starts at 6.30pm on Radio 4. I don't think they'll be short of subjects. Michelle Visage plays tunes that make you feel good at 7pm on Radio 2. In the Silence of My Pain at 10pm on Radio 3, musician Hannah French reveals how she lives with chronic pain. I hope you enjoy at least some of these choices. 
Hello, this is Val from Otley Talking News with my selection of audio described TV programmes for the week beginning Saturday the 3rd to Friday the 9th of September 2022. So we start with Saturday the 3rd of September. On BBC Two at 12 in Rickstein, Spain, the chef travels from Santander to Galicia on the Atlantic coast. There are two episodes of Superman and Lois on BBC One starting at 5.15pm. John L catches sight of his doppelganger. A triple bill of Midsummer Murders is on ITV3 at 5pm with The Dagger Club. The unveiling of a newly discovered novel by a deceased crime writer is jeopardised when the manuscript is stolen and a woman is fatally electrocuted. There are two episodes of Casualty tonight, starting at 7.45. Robin has doubts about the surrogacy, while Ian and Faith's friendship is tested. In the second episode at 8.30, Stevie and Dylan clash and Robin struggles with IVF side effects. Britain by Beach is on Channel 4 at 8pm. This week, Anita Rani revisits the Lancashire beaches of her childhood. Blackpool and Morecambe. This is followed at 9pm, also on Channel 4, by Griff's Canadian Adventure, when he explores the frozen wilds of Canada's north in the province of Manitoba. Or over on Film 4 at 9, The Equaliser 2, action-packed sequel in which Denzel Washington's ex-secret agent takes on the case of a friend's suspicious death. Moving on to Sunday the 4th of September. In the Great British Countryside on BBC Two at 1pm, Hugh Dennis and Julia Bradbury explore Yorkshire. The afternoon film on BBC One at 3.50pm is the animated comedy adventure The Incredibles. Seven Worlds One Planet on BBC One at 5.35pm visits the wildlife of the African continent. A new six-part series starts on ITV at 7.30pm. Gino's Italy, like Mama used to make. Gino de Campo embarks on a journey through Italy to celebrate the women who have fuelled his countrymen for generations. The crime drama Ridley continues at 8pm on ITV. Retired detective Ridley is called in to help solve the case of a young woman found in a shallow grave on a Pennine moor. The Radio Times pick of the day is the drama The Capture on BBC One at 9pm. Following the shocking broadcast hack on Isaac Turner MP, DCI Rachel Carey must work out who is responsible and who she can trust continues tomorrow at 9pm. A new series of celebrity SAS Who Dares Wins starts on Channel 4 at 9pm. 14 celebrity recruits head to the unforgiving Jordanian desert to take on the toughest course to date. The late night film on ITV at 10.20pm is The Magnificent Seven, a remake of the classic western. Now for those daytime programmes which are on at the same time throughout the week. 
Homes Under the Hammer is at 11.15am, Monday to Friday. Bargain Hunt is at 12.15, Tuesday to Friday. A new series of Doctors starts this week at 1pm. Escape to the Country is at 3pm and Garden Rescue is at 3.45pm, all Monday to Friday on BBC One. Dickinson's Real Deal is at 2pm on ITV and Heartbeat is at 7pm on ITV3, Monday to Friday. Now on to Monday the 5th of September. Jamie's One Pan Wonders is on Channel 4 at 8.30pm. Jamie demonstrates how to make a tray-baked salmon in a bag, tomato fritters and roasted rolled pork with a risotto cooked in the same casserole dish. Three choices for 9pm. On BBC One, the drama The Capture continues. Over on BBC Two, the first in a new three-part documentary series, The Boys from Brazil, Rise of the Bolsonaros. With Brazil's presidential election fast approaching, this series takes an in-depth look at the rise to power of the right-wing populist Jair Bolsonaro. And on ITV at nine, episode two of The Suspect, Julianne desperately wants Joe to focus on his health, but he can't get the case of the murdered young woman out of his head. This is the Radio Times pick of the day. A new documentary series on Channel 4 at 10pm, second hand for 50 grand, following the staff at a company that sources high-end pre-owned goods for its clients. Tuesday the 6th of September. A new 11-part series of the Yorkshire Vet starts at 7pm on Channel 5 tonight. Peter hatches a plan to help Mabel the donkey's owners and her grieving best friend get over the shock of her loss. The subject of tonight's Fake or Fortune on BBC One at 8pm is a landscape painting of a French village which could be worth over £250,000. This is followed at 9pm on BBC One by Celebrity Masterchef, when the eight semi-finalists battle for a place in the final week. The Radio Times pick of the day is the documentary Days That Shook the BBC with David Dimbleby on BBC Two at 9pm. This week he looks into the Hutton Inquiry into the corporation's coverage of the government's dossier on weapons of mass destruction following the Iraq war and the scandal of predatory paedophile Jimmy Savile. Now for Wednesday the 7th of September. The repair shop is on BBC One at 8pm. Jay Blades presides over the workshop as more treasured heirlooms are restored to their former glory. Two new cookery series start on BBC Two tonight. Mary Berry, Cook and Share is at 8pm. Mary focuses on the importance of eating with our nearest and dearest, beginning with recipes for special occasions. This is followed at 8.30 by Nadia's Everyday Baking, starting with Nadia's unique take on the traditional afternoon tea. Two choices at 9pm. On BBC One, Shetland. 
Perez tries to get the measure of Lloyd and evidence emerges of another bomb maker. On ITV, the final series of Doc Martin starts. Dr Martin Ellingham begins to question whether he made the right decision to resign as Port Wen's GP. In the grate at 11.05pm on Channel 4, Catherine's team is falling apart and she begins to doubt her reign when her mother visits. Thursday the 8th of September At 8pm on BBC One in Celebrity Masterchef, the semi-finals continue. Saving Lives at Sea is on BBC Two at 8pm. The lifeboat crew undertake a frantic search for three fishermen whose boat has capsized. George Clark's Old House New Home is on Channel 4 at 8pm. In Weymouth, George meets a couple whose 19th century coach house was destroyed overnight by a flash flood. On ITV3 at 10pm, the first two episodes of Series 3 of crime drama The Bay. The following two episodes are at the same time tomorrow. So finally we come to Friday the 9th of September. In the final episode of Hobbyman on Channel 4 at 8pm, Alex Brooker explores Yorkshire with chef and broadcaster Andy Oliver. They discover model railways in York, have a gliding lesson near Thirsk and learn how to salsa in Leeds. In Celebrity Masterchef on BBC One at 8.30pm, the remaining six celebrity cooks compete in the last of the semi-finals. The Radio Times pick of the day is the return of Mortimer and White House Gone Fishing on BBC Two at 9pm. Bob and Paul return to fish more riverbanks and lakes across the UK. This is followed at 9.30pm, also on BBC Two, by Martin Compston's Scottish Fling, a new six-part travel series. The Line of Duty star travels across his homeland to showcase what makes modern Scotland tick. The late-night film on BBC One at 10.40pm is Pirates of the Caribbean, Salazar's Revenge, starring Johnny Depp. Jack Sparrow embarks on a quest to track down the trident of Poseidon when an old rival rises from a watery grave. I hope you find some programmes from my choices that will appeal to you. TNF Soundings 